My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives and topics, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. And ways you can support our ministry is first, you can follow our Instagram page. And then if you're old school, you can like the Facebook page as well. You can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath any social media channel you are watching or listening to. And you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the Give tab. So you are joining us live tonight at 8.30 Pacific Standard Time. If you are joining live for this podcast, and this will be replayed for us on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So every Thursday night, we come together for this broadcast to go a little bit deeper. We call it a deeper dive of the material that we're covering. So if you've been following us online, you know that and you will remember that we are in a series called Atlas of the Heart. This is a spinoff of Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, and we are looking for a biblical understanding and a biblical view of emotions. And tonight, created when we fall short. So we're looking at biblical emotions when we fall short. I'm joined tonight with Shreya Bonner and Jake Fluke, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Shreya. Good evening, oh. Kevin. So we are talking tonight on when we fall short. We're talking about shame. We're talking about humiliation. We're talking about guilt and embarrassment all the good stuff and so i'm excited but before we get started just a couple of things that i've been thinking about that i want to talk to you guys about so uh, somebody asked me about our sound healer down at the down at the church and so yeah i did some a little bit of research and poking around and stacy's been just a great gem of a person she runs classes down at our building, uh, Vine and Sparrow, and so she does sound healing. And somebody questioned, what is a sound healer? A sound healer is actually an ancient practice that goes back to Greek, you know, Roman days, probably before, way before. But uh, that's where the research is actually, uh, actually based, is what they used to do around that time. And sound healing actually is a proven method of healing or treatment for trauma, depression, anxiety, all kinds of illnesses, physical, mental, addiction. So it's really, it has a proven track record, sound healing. She gets up in front with big bowls and sounds and, you know, I don't know, chimes. Maybe she plays the juice harp. I don't know. But she gets up in front of everybody and uh, she talks about uh, sound and sound healing. And so that's what she does. And it actually is a it actually is a proven deal. And so I'm really excited to promote that. So anyway, that is that is just something that I've been thinking about. I've also been thinking about ayahuasca treatments and all that too. So anyway, maybe she could become our sh shaman of uh, hallucinogenic treatments <clears throat> as well. When I thought I uh, broke my knee one time, like a bone in my knee, mm -hmm. uh, I took a tuning fork to it. Yeah. 
because your bones will resonate in a certain pitch. And so if you, if it would hurt more, if you, if you had broken your bone. Huh. Ouch. So, I mean, sound is, is a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a yep. big deal. Have you guys been to the sound healing? I haven't. I have not I, done that, no. I, <clears throat> she has helped a lot of people. And I'm really excited about, about what she, uh, what she has done. All right. So let's talk about our topic tonight. Mm -hmm. We're talking about places we go when we fall short, shame, self-compassion, perfectionism, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. These are the places that we go when we feel like we do not meet the mark. Hmm. And they are very much, uh, I would say, deep in our systems of community, whether it be in our culture, whether it be in our churches, whether it be in our families. I would say that these emotions really hit very deep. And so uh, a lot of work has been done on shame and also humiliation and the others as well. But shame right now is kind of a trigger, but also a, I don't want to say trendy word, but it definitely is trending when it comes to the church. And so most churches teach shame without knowing it. So we have uh Rob, you can take that slide down now. We have um, a history of, of promoting but also shaming people uh, when it comes to like either sin or trying to correct somebody's behavior or just blatantly not agreeing with someone or something or some idea. And so we used to shame people. Uh, for what they wore or what they, you know, maybe wore a hat or wore the wrong, I guess, clothes to church or whatever it was. We used to shame people. Um, I used to be shamed as a pastor because I didn't wear a tie. So that was, um, that was, you know, always a thing. But sh shame is one of those things in our culture, just, just basically, you know, people issue comments of shame all the time or comments of humiliation or embarrassment or comments of, <clears throat> of guilt or whatever. So I've been out pressure washing today. Um, the, uh, we own a business, it's a coffee house and I've been doing the, the asphalt driveway. And so I've been pressure washing that driveway. Uh, yesterday we, or the day before yesterday, we took down the tent that was outside and we were doing some work. Uh, Jake and I were doing some work on the gravel on, in the, in the parking area. And th that day when Jake and I were working and today, it seems like that people have this need to make comments. They have a need. It's like this burning desire to say something. And usually that something is just riddled in, uh, riddled in sarcasm. And in their sarcasm, 
they're like making fun of us because we're working or they're making fun of us because we're doing labor, you know, that kind of uh, labor. So, so yeah, so that's a form of like shaming statements. So it was really interesting today. Somebody came up and they were very angry at me because I was pressure washing, disrupting their spiritual coffee moment or whatever, you know, they were having around their cup of tea or I have no idea what they were doing. Hashtag but blessed. I, yeah, hashtag blessed over my Java. So so I, I was in the back, but you could you couldn't really hear. I mean it was, you know, a motor running in the back of the shop. So they made it a point to come back and tell me that I should be doing that kind of work at night or after hours. And I looked at this person, which will remain genderless, and this person, right, I just looked at them and said, well, I have a, a family and children at home, and I don't really want to spend my night pressure washing asphalt and so I decided to do it during the day like everyone else works. And so what it made me feel is it actually made me feel a sense of shame. It made me feel a sense of embarrassment. It made me feel a sense of like humiliation that I was out just working. So across the street, there's, you know, city workers and they're doing work. And then across the street, there was some more city workers and they were trimming the trees and she didn't or this person didn't go over and uh, and tell the city workers that they should be, you know, working at night. So so there's all kinds of comments. I'm sure that that was an innocent, you know, she was just disrupted and it was, you know, noisy and she wanted her, you know, hashtag. The, the, you, gen, you, gen, you gendered it. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I did it and then moved on. So, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So yeah, well, the guy that <laughs> walked up to us during the tent and made sure to tell Jake, you know, if you used a hammer, that would be a lot easier. It's like, yeah, it would be a lot easier if I used a hammer on your head. So, <laughs> so you know, it's like I, I just think about the comments that people make uh, to others. I, I just never would do that, but maybe I do Social it in other ways. Social pressure is powerful. It is powerful. So I think in our think culture, we... I, in our culture, our families, our churches, our communities, mm -hmm. these emotions are so deep seated that we say stuff that we really don't even realize what we're actually saying. You know, you should mm -hmm. work after hours so that my coffee time is not disrupted. Well, maybe you should work after hours and get out of my face. You know, that's, that's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. But anyway, that's just my that's just my thoughts on initial Take thoughts. Oh, but yeah, opening up this this topic. Does anyone have any opening thoughts? <laughs> I mean, on on shame, we'll probably get this later. But shame, we we all shame, and we all feel shame. I think it's a it's a human condition to right, right. to engage with that. Um, we'll talk about guilt a little bit, and um, I don't think this is something we get into. But there's two bases of cultures, and one is shame, and the other is guilt. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I don't know if we ever talked about that or not, but we can do that later. Um, but we shame definitely into submission, and so like 
when that person walked up to you and shamed you for working, their goal was to make you stop. Spoken or unspoken, we shame to to create submission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Well, actually, we're going to talk about the idea of humiliation um, much mm-hmm. later on. So that's that's something that's that's coming up. Well, I think that there's ideas of shame. Since I'm taking shame and guilt, I'll talk about just those and explicate those and give a biblical understanding of shame and guilt just really quick because I'm really excited to get to humiliation and embarrassment. So we talk a lot about I'm really excited to just get to those get to those topics. Um I find I find uh people who have gone through trauma and people who have gone through like abuse of of any kind, any kind of trauma really. Like somebody that has PTSD coming from back from war or somebody that has PTSD from rape as a child or as a as an as an adult either one uh ptsd one of the signature ideas of post-traumatic stress is an immense amount of shame and when we look at that immense amount of shame sometimes that drives people to react or drives people to respond to that shame in violence or abuse themselves and so sometimes our ptsd can have just that trigger effect. Some people call them triggers where we're triggered in PTSD and then we, uh, then we react and that then builds more shame on top of the shame that we already feel. So shame when it comes to trauma definitely has a stacking effect like a deck of cards, you know, you're handed one card and it's bad, but then by the time, you know, you're, of old age, you have, you know, multiple decks of cards of shame because you've just cycled through and and have not healed. Um, I brought up sound healing because I've been thinking about different kinds of healing methods. And sometimes in order to overcome some of the mental and spiritual abuses that we've experienced, it takes healing and it takes actually new neural pathways being carved in your brain to change our responses or a PTSD reactions. So shame from abuse, trauma, uh, sexual abuse, whatever it is, those uh, types of traumas can be lifelong, definitely, without counseling or therapy. you know, basically you're just left with the tools that you have inside. And so new tools are not grown and adopted, uh, and shame can stack in, in our lives if it's not treated properly. And there's different, you know, there's different, all kinds of therapies. There's EMDR therapy. There is ayahuasca therapy. If you want to do something, you know, kind of off the chain like that, sound healings and things like that, or just regular therapy, just going and talking it out and getting new tools on how to control when your, when your reptilian brain, basically your alligator brain, uh, flips its lid. We need tools in those moments to close the lid and, and shame or the trigger that then initiates more feeling of shame 
that can cause our lid to blow. So if you think about the psychology of shame, um, that's just in a nutshell, I think what, uh, what most people um, know shame to be. And in Genesis, it talks about, and it's, it's in Genesis 3, at the end of the Genesis record, it, or the initial creation record, it talks about uh, God covered Adam and Eve with animal skin, meaning there's a sacrifice in animal skin that is covering their nakedness. <clears throat> so nakedness has always in history and also antiquity and books and such and written has, has been a sign or a visual idea of shame. So Jesus naked on the cross or Adam and Eve naked in the garden and realizing they were naked and they were filled with shame. So God, in, in a sense, takes away their shame in the garden by covering them with animal skin. So we see that in Genesis 3.20. So right at the beginning of, of Scripture, of, of our Bible, we see in, in 3.20 that, that God deals with and puts shame to rest. And that's the issue, is God is not necessarily um, plucking it uh, you know, from your memory, it's not like, you know, you're going clear, like a Scientologist would go clear. It, we're not going clear with our history because we feel and uh, we will continue to feel the traumas and such that we've experienced. Yet there is a promise and also there is activities and tools and therapies and such that we can acquire to begin to put shame to rest. And that's the issue is, is are we tuning down the dial and are we, are we pulling the slider down when it comes to, let's say we have PTSD, are we pulling down the slider of reaction? Are we pulling down the slider of our anger? Are we pulling down our slider of the emotional explosion that we're having? Because ultimately shame is just, is, is not moral or immoral inside of me. It is a thing that I experience when I go through stuff and I realize I've gone through stuff. And so that, that uh, expression then becomes the immoral or moral expression. So if I'm beating people up because I experience shame, then, then that is, you know, of course, immoral. Uh, so Romans 10 promises that all who have faith will will not be put to shame. So again, we see shame being put to rest in those that are saved. Ultimately, the heavenly, the, the hell versus heaven type experience division that we might, um, we might entertain at the end of our life all who have faith in Christ, in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. But those that don't, um, obviously the antithesis of that is uh, another place besides heaven that we go. So, so scripture promises that shame can be put to rest. Heavenly or spiritual shame Let's call it spiritual shame that is healed in Christ. My physical mental shame, I would say there is a my part, God's part. So God, God tells me, promises me that I have these 
hanger on statements that God is going to heal and put the rest of my shame. But I have my part, which is my part is I just can't deny the therapies and tools out there that we really need to engage in. So some people think that, well, why are you depressed? You know, isn't Jesus your Lord? Or why do you experience so much guilt? Um, I just was listening to a story of a, of a woman where her husband was on a pretty strong antidepressant. And that antidepressant had, you know, that black label warning on it. And, and it was a strong antidepressant, not just a, a, a normal, you know, everyday antidepressant. It was very strong. And over the phone, the doctor doubled his dosage just over the phone without seeing this person, without visiting, no doctor's visit, just a televisit, doubled his dosage. And he went, he went psycho. I mean, he just fell off the deep end and he killed his daughter and killed himself. So the woman, the, the wife, the mother lived with that for 10 years, just no closure, no nothing, just they're dead. She felt an immense amount of shame because she was alive. So she didn't do anything. Survivor's guilt usually. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't do anything. She didn't do anything to, to cause this or not. It was just, she was at work when it happened Hmm. and she had an immense amount of shame, uh, that she was actually, she was actually alive, that she had that guilt, but she was using the word shame. And she was also saying, she was also saying that she could actually in her shame, uh, literally physically like have like an out of body type, like, like she was just mental in that state. So trauma affects us. And that's all I'm trying to say there. And shame affects us in very deep ways when you're dealing with that kind of shame to look at somebody and say, well, they're in a better place. Um, or to look at them and say, oh, well, Jesus, you know, works all things for the good of those that believe in him. I mean, just to say stuff like that to people, actually it doesn't work and it's not helpful. Number one, but number two, those are like, those are existential promises. Those are like the transcendent promises of God. Mm -hmm. The imminent promise of God is there are people, community, flesh and blood that are going to walk me through uh, this loss, this trauma, or this, or this shame. So guilt says I did something bad. I lied. I stole something, took a pen off the bank counter. I, whatever it is, right? The, the I bring up little things because I don't want to <laughs> accuse people of like the big sins because most people I think don't commit the big sins. Uh, they're not out why to get them people. Down. What? It's, it's why they chain them down. Yeah, the exactly. The bank. Exactly, right? Uh, but honestly, it's like I think most people have positive intent when they live in this world. Um, most people. And people are doing the very best with what they've been given. So we have guilt, right? Of the of the th- the things that I do bad, but shame it shame actually is me saying I am bad. So mm-hmm. I have the ethos of bad. I actually have the embodiment of bad versus 
I did bad. <clears throat> so that brings up a problem. And I just want to mention that problem really quick. And my problem is we have sin that we do, right? Like that is on purpose sin. So if I steal your 10 bucks, right, that is an on purpose sin. Or if I lie to you on purpose, you know, about the Christmas presents. No, if I lie to you on purpose about, you know, something that I did that I didn't do to try to cover my bases of my reputation, that is considered sin. That's an intentional sin. But the church is notorious for blaming, shaming, and imposing guilt on people that they perceive have every control of the feelings, thoughts, and actions they have. And one of the areas that the church has done this is mental illness. So if somebody's mentally ill and they do something, they are in sin uh, and we're pointing the finger, yet they have no control over what's happening to them or why they're doing what they're doing. They don't have a a sense of maybe a regulatory uh regulatory idea so we say well you know by grace you know you're just a part of the fallen world right so we look at a mentally ill person and we just say well you're just a part of the fallen world so if you're schizophrenic you're just a part of the fallen world so you're marked with fallenness that's challenging when you look at somebody and just say that they're a part of the fallen world we're all a part of the fallen world uh somebody that is mentally ill doesn't have control and didn't choose to be that way and so the church is notorious for putting shame on a person that they perceive has a choice of being that way when even they don't have a choice of being that way so that brings up lgbtq it's like what 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 are we going to do with somebody that is that is gay or somebody that is gender uh, I want to use the proper term. Non-heteronormative. Non-heteronormative. So when you have somebody that's non-heteronormative or somebody that's gay or somebody that's just LGBTQ+, we'll just give the, the full, you know, the full uh, label. So if somebody is... IA+, plus, yeah. Yeah, if somebody is a part of that community, and let's say they have never felt anything different, they've never experienced anything different, they've never, they've never been any way different as far, as far as they can remember. So is that their choice or is that their not choice? And the church, and I, I, I'm not gonna answer that for us tonight. What I'm gonna say though is the church is notorious for putting shame on people that we believe have a choice in their behavior when their experiences, they have no choice. no choice. And the church needs to start being very, very careful because eventually those guns that we've pointed at people are going, have been and are Could being be. pointed back. And as we have expressed verbal and spiritual violence against the world, now we're experiencing verbal and sometimes physical, uh, but definitely just apathy towards us. Like people just don't care about the church anymore because we have shamed people in such a way. So I think that we have a lot of work to do. Um, 
and I bring up those topics not just to be controversial for controversial sake. I, I think that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to shame and guilt and how we impose that on people, whether we are choosing for them that it's their choice to be a certain way or act a certain way or not. We definitely issue shame. So shame and guilt, that's my that's my topic for Could I tonight. clarify yes. something a little bit? Please, please, yeah. Um, like, I think that it's, absolutely true that the church at large needs to needs to be more careful and needs to be more loving because there is a backlash yeah um but also we just need to be more loving because the regardless. bible tells us to <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah right but i also want to be clear that it's not necessarily fair to say with the example of um LGBTQ folks that um, the church will experience backlash from them or violence um, because they are a group that has historically experienced violence. Yes, um, I guess I didn't mean to necessarily say violence. It's more, I would say, apathy. Like people yeah. just have stopped caring about the church. And the church becomes irrelevant. Right. We have become irrelevant. So my apologies. I didn't mean to say like violence, like physical violence. I think it's more um, just apathy or. Yeah. And deserved. Yeah. I think deserved. Like if something, if something speaks something to you long enough, you go, okay, I, I need to get into a, a better space. And this is an abusive space. I need to get into mm -hmm. a more healthier space. And I think a lot of people, and let's, you know, let's globalize it. Let's not just focus on one group. I think a lot of people are experiencing that. Yeah. They're just, you know, wanting to be in a different space. So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So the uh, going back to your story about um, the mom who is at work, we talked yeah. about sur survivor's guilt. Um, in our definition of shame and guilt, it was correctly placed to be survivor's shame because guilt is an action that you do yourself. You have right. guilt towards your own action where usually survivorship is not a re as a re result of your own action. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is interesting. I thought. Yes. But yeah, that was good. So let's get into self-compassion and perfectionism. Jake, why don't you take that one? <clears throat> so, uh, Self-compassion is more of the result, not the result, the, the practice of coming out of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, if it's good to put it as an emotional state, but to, to recognize it as how do we, how do we emerge from that self-deprecating spiral of shame guilt even humiliation i think falls in this category as well but what is our what is our internal response to shame and guilt and so rob if you want to throw that image up that i sent you um the petri dish image 
So shame in this little picture, the, the fuels of the fire of shame are judgment, secrecy, and silence. And so when we sit in judgment, secrecy, and silence, and usually the judgment is a internal and self-judgment, our shame festers and festers and boils over. And it's with empathy, usually empathy of self or even empathy of somebody else coming alongside of us that our shame shrinks. But if you notice in the Petri dish, the shame never goes away. And that is just something that that's a human experience of shame. And so we carry that around with us. Like we talked about uh, last week with, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, with the idea of of grief, of um, mm. long grief, or give me the word, Kevin. Internalized grief, or what, what is that? Complicated. Yeah, com- complicated grief. Hold on. Integrated grief. Oh, integrated that, grief, yeah. When it becomes that, a part of your lifestyle. and life, yeah. 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 Shame becomes a part of our lifestyle, where in trauma and shame those those type of experiences build us in our in our neurological pathways and who we are as as people together right. that's that's what tells our story um yet there's a way to emerge and help us to get into that position of self-compassion and and self empathy mm-hmm. and the idea has three elements it's self-kindness versus self-judgment and so looking at yourself and, and being being first kind to yourself. Common humanity versus isolation. And so when when we think that we are the only ones experiencing this or the only ones that feel this way or the only ones, the only ones, the only ones, and we isolate ourselves even more and more and more, then it the shame festers inside of us to the point where where we have objectified ourselves so much that is a spiral of depression and really is is a grief of of lostness but commune humanity says that humans all experience a lot of things and maybe it's not the exact same thing like i can't empathize two weeks ago with the conversation of having having uh, miscarriages but there was some two people online that had the exact same experience and that could empathize strongly with each other but i can empathize with losing someone i can empathize with fear i can empathize with with lots of things of of trauma of sadness of grief and so we find a common humanity in those base emotions and when we look at ourselves and say what is our other people experiencing? Maybe not the same thing, which, but it'd be almost impossible, I think, that somebody else has not experienced the same thing that you have millions of times. But how do we engage with people that, that know about us and know us as people? Then you have the idea of mindfulness versus over-identification. And mindfulness is a non-judgmental space where we sit and we notice 
but we don't engage with the thoughts and the overthinking, the over-identification of, of problems, of feelings, of issues. It's when our brain becomes distracted and, and picks up on every little thing that we try to identify and give a name to instead of just sitting in the present. And our distraction takes so much time that we're not able to to heal. And so we we engage into mindfulness. Then you have the the four principles of shame resilience. And if you read any of Brene Brown's other books, um, I forget her first one. Gifts of Imperfection. Yes, thank you. No, Gifts of Imperfection. So she talks about shame resilience and recognizing shame, understanding its triggers. And so we have different things in our life which which trigger our responses and trigger our shame cycle that we can get into that we and remember shame is, is that we are not worth it or we're not living up to our, even our own, uh, our own expectations as I'll get into here very soon with perfectionism, practicing, practicing critical awareness. And that's the part of mindfulness. So checking your messages in your in your body, checking your messages in your mind, making sure that you are consistent and you're stable and you're trying to be as objective as possible. Reaching out so that you are communicating and talking about the experience that you're in and trying to find other people that can empathize with you, but also speaking shame and speaking about your your triggers speaking about your your shame experience what what things cause shame in you um and if you actually write down the things that cause shame in you you will very quickly notice a pathway and a motif of of responses that they are all very similar and so you can start to get down to the root of your what causes true shame any input on that section i just think that sounds like a great practice mm-hmm. that's good okay just give me yes, space we're looking at perfectionism there you go um i forget what i put in for for passages for that one throw throw one up for me rob that i put one in there so uh there we go that's a great one thanks love your neighbor as you love yourself there are two ideas for this the the first is that you really should love yourself. And I think Christianity often teaches that we need to deny ourselves always and give and give and give. But if we don't love ourselves, there'll be nothing left to give. And well, I guess that's the second option too, is that if we don't, if we don't uh, love ourselves, then we can't love others. And so um, 
give this to me, Kevin. The the law of proportionate love. There we go. That we can only love so much that we have experienced love, but experienced love means that we have opened ourselves up to knowing, experiencing, feeling, and practicing love with ourselves. I give thanks to you that I am, I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well, so that I am that wonderful work. Okay, let's get into perfectionism. And I'm going to start with the, the scripture passage this time, Rob. If I can get my Matthew five forty or something like that. 48. 48. My, four, my five forty eight. I'll keep moving forward, and we'll come back to it. Um, to start with a, a quote from a Benedictine nun, Joan Schisler. She writes, the problem, it would seem, is to foolishly accept perfection as our standard or goal, but that goal is an oppressive one and a set up for failure, for no Christian this side of heaven will ever reach it. The problem, of course, is that we fail. We know ourselves to be weak. We stumble along, being less than we can ever be never living up to our own standards, let alone anyone else's. We eat too much between meals. We work too little to get ahead. We drink more than we should at the office party. We're all addicted to something. Those addictions not only cripple us, they convince us that we are worthless and incapable of being worthwhile. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of the worst order because it traps us inside our own sense of adequacy, our futility, of failure. Instead, we ought to view failure as among the best friends of the soul. Rather than subscribe to unattainable, we should come to appropriate the sanctifying nature of mistakes, mis mistakes and calculations. <clears throat> and to throw up Matthew 5:48, therefore just as your heavenly Father is complete in ship. Well, that is, uh, so you must also be complete. So that's a great version uh, because most of us learn it as, therefore, just as your heavenly father is perfect, you must also be perfect. And that jumps ahead to my, um, <laughs> to my uh, interpretation of that passage, that perfection in scripture, perfection in Christianity is the ability to show to show love, to show love to yourself and to show love to others. And so be perfect in love, therefore, as God is also perfect. So perfectionism and the idea of perfectionism is a destructive and addictive belief system that fuels the primary thought that if I look perfect, live perfectly, work perfect and do everything perfect i can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame judgment and blame and so lots of us have grown up in familial structures that that push us hard into perfectionism 
so that we can move alongside and not have to experience being shamed in submission, having the guilt of not doing enough. Shame, shame then is not being enough. Guilt is not doing enough. And so moving alongside of those so that we don't have to experience that trauma. And so it is a protective, a self-protective, self-preservation. But in the end, it only leads to more self-destruction. And so it is the emotion of trying to trying to protect ourselves from the base emotion of shame and guilt and, and blame. And so if I can if I can work harder than everybody else, if I can do more than everybody else, if I can perform better or think faster or talk smoother, then I don't have to experience the the very human experience of shame, blame and guilt. It's striking that those are those emotions are still the thing underlying the perfectionism. Oh yeah. Like perfectionism just covers it over so it's harder to see. I think if we look at base emotions and moving aside of of anger, uh pride and shame. I feel like would be the two the two main emotions that guide a lot of our actions. Mm. And so um, Kevin and I had this old professor that uh, all sins have four categories, the pride of life, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so shame then, I think is in that pride of life category that, that we are not enough and so our pride gets hit. Mm-hmm. First John two sixteen. And what's that? For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from our Father, but from the world. Hmm. I didn't know that was actually in the Bible. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought it was just him. <laughs> <laughs> or or Brown, I should say. <laughs> Good. Okay. Any more thoughts on perfectionism? I think perfectionism is, um, there's two categories of perfectionism. I think that there is the disease of perfectionism, you know, where we have like an addiction to perfectionism to uh, avoid shame or guilt or embarrassment, whatever it is. But then there's a perfectionism that uh, you have a self-motivation that you're trying to like avoid something internally. Mm -hmm. And so whether you call that shame or not, I don't know. But I do know some people like an engineer's mind, right? A math mind or a, or somebody that is like really into 
well, their job, they have to be perfect in their calculations mm. and they're, you know, they're down to the, you know, 128th inch of, you know, one, one twenty-eighth of an inch, you know, trying to figure out how to do stuff at that level. Um, I would say that there's a craftsmanship behind perfectionism. But then does that, is that the ultimate, like, is there an ultimate motivator there that we don't want to experience the embarrassment of crappy work? I, I don't know. I don't know what's there. Or maybe the shame of a boss being angry at you if you're not, like your calculations don't match. Um, or the annoying I think, I think, job what? over again. Right. Or you just don't want to do it over and over and try to figure it out again. You just want to figure it out one time. So... Mm -hmm. so I, I think that there's that very, I don't know, visceral human, uh, executive function perfectionism that I'm trying to make my mom and dad proud. Yeah. Perfectionism. Is it proud or is it so they won't shame me? Well, yeah, that's what I meant by that. You know, like, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'll meet their expectations. Like, I'm trying to meet, you know, mommy's expectations. I, I don't know. That's one level of perfectionism. There, but then there is that other level of perfectionism that can be very irritating when somebody is trying to do something very calculated and you just want to get it done. Um, but they're, they're doing something very calculated. So I knew a contractor that way where he would pick up every little piece of his mess as he went along. And I wish that he would just bust the wall out, just bust the wall out. We'll clean it up later. But his <laughs> method was just, he was just super slow and calculated and very careful. Um, and in the and end I, would save I, them more time. Yeah. I'm glad he was I'm as I go person. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he was very calculated. So it's like, his, he was, I would say he was a perfectionist, but is that just being a carefulist? I don't know. Like, a craftsman. That craftsman. There's a difference, I think though. There's so, a neurosis of perfectionism and then there is. Right. Right. And, and I think spiritually, if we want to go back to, to church culture, there are many, denominations and Christian paths, which teach that perfection is attainable on earth. And it is our goal towards perfectionism, which has been coined holiness. Those Nazarenes. It's the Nazarene movement is a big it's one. Nazarene yes. Doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And so even like assembly of God, they have a very large holiness, um, mm -hmm. Four square, yeah. Square, four square has a very large like holiness movement as well. Not everything. To be, fair, to be fair, I think it's Nazarene's old doctrine. I don't know if they would be. The old Nazarene doctrine is perfectionism on earth. Yeah, Even that you can basically were, become Christ on earth. I think that's they're the very farthest that could. Right. That would go that way. But that only sets us up for failure of more shame of when we fall, our fall is even bigger. Mm -hmm. And it misses the point that perfection 
has nothing to do with any type of thing that we do besides loving other people. Mm-hmm. And so holiness, if you want to coin those two with perfection, which I think is, is a sin in itself to put holiness with perfection as a, because the holiness means that you're for something greater than yourself. Those those two things don't match unless you say our holiness and our perfectionism is to is to love those outside instead of being pious and focus on piety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's move on oh. for our last section on humiliation and embarrassment. Yep. I'm excited about this topic all right um so for a lot of us who have been keeping track of Brene Brown's work um the big emotion there has been shame um and she talks about shame as um one of the most dangerous things we can experience because of how isolating and disconnecting that it is um in an atlas of the heart, Brene Brown revises her claims that shame is the most dangerous and instead says that humiliation is one of the mm-hmm. most dangerous things that we can experience. Um, so humiliation is defined as the intensely painful feeling that we've been unjustly degraded, ridiculed, or put down and that our identity has been demeaned or devalued. Um, Humiliation feels similar to shame, um, but where one of the differences is, is that with shame, we feel deserve it. We deserve it um, because of that belief that I am bad. So we deserve to feel this way. Whereas with humiliation, we don't feel like we deserve to feel this way. Um, it's unjust, and we have less buy-in to the message that we are flawed. Hmm. The study that changed Brown's mind um, came out in 2003, and it looked at 10 school shooters between the years of 1996 and 1999. Um, And they said that in every case, the shooter described being bullied by peers or adults um, in a way that led to them feeling profoundly humiliated. Um, And that was kind of the key they found. The study didn't show that bullying itself was what led to violence. It was bullying that was accompanied by humiliation, um, that feeling of being unjustly ridiculed. Um, Something that I'm still thinking through with that is that it would almost suggest that people who feel a lot of shame are at less risk of engaging in violence, Um, which is just an interesting thing to keep in mind when it comes to having a healthy society. Um, Mm. So say say that again, because I don't, at first glance, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, 
so humiliation is um it's different from shame because with shame we feel like we deserve it right. with right. humiliation yeah. we feel like we don't it, okay okay there it i is wonder right there. got it yeah, i wonder it. if that yeah. suggests that people who feel yeah. a large sense of shame are at less risk of engaging in violence yeah, because they take on and embody, I deserve this. Yeah, rather versus, than got externalizing. It. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's really good. That's really interesting to, I don't know, take that into cultural violence. And yeah, it'd be a really interesting study. More of a study, you know, than what's listed here for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just think this especially matters for how we treat each other and especially now that we have social media um, and the way that prioritizes and rewards um, polarizing statements. Um, I, I think it's very easy to normalize um, saying things and doing things that humiliate other people. Um, and that puts us in a dangerous place. Very much so. Yeah. What are, some, um, what are some things that we do? Do you, from your perspective, more like than in, just sarcasm? Like in remedy or things that humiliate people? What do we do as, let's talk about the church. What do we do as the church <laughs> that humiliates people? I know what we do as culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I think not saying, not saying her name, we're imposing humiliation. When we say her name, we're actually giving that person a voice. Do you get what I'm saying there? Um, <clears throat> say her name is a movement that, uh, that oh got you yeah, yep. yeah. Say, okay say. so say your name yep. right is mm -hmm. a movement so so when we don't say her name right Gosh. there is a sense of issuing that that just imposes humiliation and shame onto the victim we've been doing that for a long time i i was just reminded of uh, I think it's Matthew's genealogy um, and how Bathsheba is present, um, right, but she's right. referred to as Uriah's wife. Right. She isn't even right. named. So the cultural humiliation in, in gender for women, when we don't, let me be very clear, when we don't say her name, mm -hmm. right? that is an issue of shame, humiliation, and like avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it puts shame and humiliation, it puts the blame on the victim, mm -hmm. ultimately, like deeply. Uh, when we say her name, that gives that person a voice again in the situation, but brings and props up the victim, like it carries the victim's burden. So, so yeah, I, it's just a thought that I had culturally, 
Um, and then if you brought that into the church, having the gender inequality challenge that we have in the church, uh, and not placing, putting, ordaining females into certain roles in the church, or I'm a pastor, but you're a director, you know, so our, our nameplate on our, right. our on our door is di director versus pastor. That's, I see that mm -hmm. all the time. <clears throat> so like even our lack of not saying, women her, yeah, not saying a proper title, uh, it's just, I don't know, that's, that, that to me is kind of like, you know, just church, uh, church yeah. silliness that's turned into abuse. Like, that's just like, like, it's just dumb theology to not call, you know, a, a woman a pastor. So, so yeah, that we do things like that uh, and that issues shame and humiliation mm -hmm. against, against females. So I can see that in the church. How, how else? I think oh. we brushed on it a bit. Um, the, they blame the victim. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we, we, we were kind of were dancing around a bit about it. Um, but definitely either blame, blame the victim or don't blame the other party. And so like, uh, it's been a a past and church experience for young women who become pregnant to get kicked out of the church mm -hmm. while the male counterpart is still allowed on the worship team right yeah and was was on stage when she was marched in front of everybody and and called an anthema basically mm -hmm. right. so you have that type of uh, blame the victim or not blame the other party yeah so in cults like certain cults that i mean you know there's whole documentary series on on very popular what people would call cults mm -hmm. where they take their abuse and they hide their abuse within the walls of the church so they actually don't believe in going to the police when someone's raped or molested or or their sexual abuse of some kind. They, they believe they yeah. don't believe in going to authorities and reporting such things. Um, so they, they just hold those in the walls of the church or getting therapy or even doctor care. Sometimes uh, yeah. they don't believe that we should be going outside of the walls of the church to authorities and to care and doctors and such to get or therapy counselors, therapists, psychologists to get help. And so, so in those settings, what happens is you have an abused, an abuser, and the abused more often times than not is asked, what did you do? Mm -hmm. yeah. What the were abused, you wearing? Yeah. What were you oh. wearing? So, yeah. Oh, that's, there's another humiliation thing where we get the, we get the document for camp. And on the camp, you know, we have the girl's dress and how she's supposed to dress. 
But and then it the takes guy, up the whole page. It takes up the page, and then the guy, you know, knows speedos or whatever. So like, right. <laughs> like, I take offense at that. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So you look at <laughs> you look at uh you look at uh just that, and I am sure that way back in the day that they had this like, you know, maybe positive motivation to do such things, yet nobody really thought through that yeah right like well we we don't want to be you know this promiscuous group okay well let's just put all that onus on the female that doesn't make sense so <clears throat> so um originally yeah we don't want to be you know this this promiscuous group but let's blame a gender so that's humiliation that i see in the church too but now I've yeah. named three. You guys, you guys name more. <laughs> Other church places, humiliation. Um, oh, sorry. Might have been really loud. Uh, the the fight over who is in and who is out in in salvation and so instead of instead of just expressing love we have to put a label of this person is saved this person is unsaved and so we engage that into humiliation Mm -hmm. um, especially when it gets as ugly as to say that a certain Christian that goes in a philosophy that's different than yours is unsaved. Yeah. It's a very like, no, I mean, kind of the point fingers, but I think all of us do it that in the reformed tradition, if you are not reformed, I, I knew you were going to go here too. If you're not reformed, <laughs> you are not saved. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Us Arminianists are, you know, open theists are climbing some salvational ladder. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> and so the. Well, a, ca a Calvin, a Calvinist definitely uh, the Calvinist movement. Calvin, John Calvin definitely was a theologian that placed people in and kicked people out. And I don't even think that Calvin did that. It definitely Melanchthon did that. Melanchthon, Calvin definitely did that. The whole a, utopia of, of Geneva. Geneva. I mean, <laughs> you live here, you're in. You live, don't live here, yeah. you're out. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that reform theology has problems when it comes to you know, number Huge. one, who gets in and out? Well, that's up to God. And does God actually kick people out? They they have lots of challenges there. So that's why I just love my open theism that I'm just, you know. Just, who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm this way. Um, this morning we watched a video by uh, Gregory Boyd. And Gregory Boyd is a Roman Catholic. Excuse um, me, let me let me correct you there. It's not Gregory Boyd. 
No, I'm sorry. Gregory yeah, Boyd's a good old pantheist out of the Midwest. Uh, forgive me. Um, <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Much has different. the same same number of letters. <laughs> yeah. um, the uh, he's a Roman Catholic. Gregory Boyd is not a Roman Catholic. Uh, Nothing against the, Roman Catholics. Not at all. No, but what was interesting is that on the video today, basically said that anyone who loves their neighbor is in Christ. Yeah. Which traditionally means that you are in that point obtaining salvation. I didn't quite know yep. how to take from a uh, from a very good Roman Catholic. Yeah, good Roman Catholic, because there's baptism, priest, sacraments. We have a lot going on there with Richard Rohr. But what I think the bigger picture of Richard Rohr's theology would be in Christ, meaning uh, anything that just because of our humanity, we do things in Christ. So loving your neighbor, feeding the poor, clothing naked, sheltering the shelterless, even if you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or, or yeah. you know, a spiritualist, animist, whatever you, you know, claim, would claim, Calvinist, <laughs> Arminianist, even if you claimed anything, is if you are acting in Christ, acting in love, in feeding the poor, clothing the naked, acting in those things, that's in Christ. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it necessarily though ushers in i didn't fully grasp that there was ushering in salvation it was a part of salvation though that he was definitely saying it was a part he's of he's dancing on that on that line. he was yeah he was dancing on that he's probably universalist and didn't want to like admit it i guess yeah. I mean, his latest book is called The Universal Christ. I'm oh, that's right. That. That's right. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to read that. I I saw that. Uh, it's great. Uh, have you read it? Yeah, yeah, I saw that the other day. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Well, maybe. There maybe you go. He was, maybe he wasn't dancing. Maybe he stepped into that. Yeah. He was laying in those waters and on that slippery <laughs> slope. Okay. Yeah, I um, I think just just the close down humiliation because you still have embarrassment, right? Yeah, but I can be quick on that one. Oh, I think humiliation when we, uh, when we don't give credit where credit is due. So let's just call it that old adage, right? When we don't give credit where credit is due. So if somebody does something wrong. Do they get credit for doing that wrong or is somebody else blamed? And when somebody else is blamed, we run the risk of humiliation. Yeah. So, so a lot of times we think that in the positive, give credit where credit is due. Um, give somebody the accolades that they need because they accomplished the work. Yet if they, and, and, and unfortunately I've been a part of these situations in churches. I'm incredibly embarrassed, like Sheree is going to talk about here soon, embarrassed about different things that I've done in the church with my leadership, eldership, 
where, you know, kicking people out of the church, you know, excommunicating what they used to call excommunication, where we kicked people out of the church for what they were doing and how they were acting and how they were in pain and suffering and struggling and, you know, just, just really big mistakes that I think that, that the church has made. And we always just kind of blamed one person of mm -hmm. a party or one person of mm -hmm. the couple or one person of the situation because we needed that person to blame for some reason. Mm -hmm. So a part of giving credit where credit is due, it's like, well, if we cast this stone here, you know, Jesus had something to say about that. You know, we're going to cast stones at ourselves. And so the credit also for wrongdoing belongs in me too. Yeah. So when I'm kicking somebody out or declaring somebody anathema, I think, uh, I think that's a part of running the risk of definitely humiliation. Can I say one mm -hmm. thing that that thought made me think of when you were talking about it? The, uh, the idea of, of conflict management in the church. We always pull from what Matthew 18. Yeah. 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 And so something completely different. And so what, yes, totally. And so what we take that as is a very humiliating passage that if someone wrongs you, you go to them. Mm -hmm. And if they don't listen to you and you think that you're still wronged, you bring one or two witnesses. Yep. And if they still don't, you take them in front of the elders. Mm -hmm. And if they still don't, then they kick them out of, they treat them as tax collector and sinner. <laughs> Yeah, pagan, pagan or basically. tax collector, yeah. And what we take that as is that you're out of the church and they're not our problem anymore. And basically they're humiliated from from the church. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we put blame on them like Kevin was talking about. We, we put them as anathema. They're completely outside. But what we are called to do with pagans and tax collectors is to relentlessly go after them mm -hmm. and love them. So that's the antidote yep. for humiliation. Well, and so when somebody first taught me that verse in that way, it was right after we had kicked mm. somebody out of a church. That hurts. Oh, it was, it was definitely... It definitely was, was awful. Uh, so, but right after that, Jake, if you read that scripture, let me look it up here because I don't have it in front of me. There's a section right after that, Matthew 18. Okay, so it says, uh, so if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church, it says. Um, and if they refuse, tells you to treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector so we relentlessly love them right so that's that is what you would do with somebody that would because he's he's not he's not talking as a pharisee and he's not talking as as some religious pious person he's actually talking as like somebody that is like down with the people and so so uh, pagan and tax collectors. So we know how Jesus treated tax collectors, right? 
ends, we know how uh, we know how uh, Paul treated pagans, right? Mm -hmm. And and so went after the pagan and dined with the tax collector. So truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there's eternal, I guess, consequences and rewards uh, in this action of humiliation or dehumiliation. Mm-hmm. where we look at somebody and how we treat them in crisis uh, will be remembered, right? So loving your neighbor in crisis is binding that in heaven, letting hate and humiliation go. Um, yeah, that's what the chains need to be broken on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Sharia, please, mm-hmm. embarrassment. Embarrassment. Embarrass yeah. us, please. And on a little lighter note. <laughs> embarrassment is defined as the fleeting feeling of self-conscious discomfort in response to a minor incident that was witnessed by others. Embarrassment usually only lasts a few minutes. It feels like we're exposed. We feel clumsy. We feel flustered. Um, and we usually respond to those feelings in non-threatening ways like humor or apologizing or just moving on and pretending that the thing didn't happen. Embarrassment is usually caused by either a social mistake, by being the center of attention, or by being in a sticky social situation. And the research shows that secondhand embarrassment is a thing. You can feel... Yeah, you can feel vicarious embarrassment for (laughs) someone who has done something embarrassing. It's like secondhand smoke. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's worse, though. (laughs) Apparently, the closer you are to the person who is being embarrassing, the greater the feeling of embarrassment for you. Secondhand embarrassment. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we've all felt it. We're in this together. And then you try to separate yourself like one degree. Though. You're like, well, we're in this together. But uh-huh. not really, because that is you. That is I you. I don't really know them yeah. that well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, who are they? <laughs> so, yeah. like, as I was thinking of biblical examples, I thought of Peter. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think about Peter um, cutting the dude's ear off. I think about Peter saying, oh, yeah, Jesus, I can do whatever you're doing. And immediately Mm. Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Like, I imagine Peter felt a lot of embarrassment. I imagine the other disciples felt a lot of secondhand embarrassment for Peter. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, even when they fell asleep, even when they, you know, there's like lots of embarrassing moments in like My saying God, the wrong geez, thing, not being get out able of the to, boat. Yeah, not being able to like know the answer to the parable. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of uh I think embarrassing moments yep. I think in scripture. Yeah. 
Not as embarrassing, though, as what we do with Scripture. I think that there's some very embarrassing. <laughs> what we do with Scripture, I think, is embarrassing. And I'm just going to say nice it. And it's like, that. huh? That was a nice little bow you tied on that. Oh, yeah. I, I look at the embarrassing things. Like, we've done really, really, uh, I would say, evil things. You know, if you look at the church in general, we've done some, I mean, yeah, we were, we were mm -hmm. like, we were the issuers of the crusades. So, you know, we've done some really evil things. Um, you know, we burned people at the stakes and drowned them. And, you know, like we, we, and the Anabaptists, we baptized the Anabaptists until they were drowned. So there's things that we have done as the church. We are Anabaptists. Uh, so. I know we're Anabaptists. We would have been the ones dead in the water. So, so, you know, we've done some really, really bad things. We've done some really humiliating things. We've done evil things. I would say there's things, though, like our views of creation. That's just flat embarrassing. What we've done with that is turned into some evil stuff. I mean, we've really done some really terrible things with it. But our views of it? Like God created the world in seven days. Let's just go there. I mean, Leviathan is the Loch Ness monster. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, come on. There's some things that we've done that is just like, like so embarrassing because it just makes absolutely no, like it's not as you make comical sense. Did Jeremiah I just open up a can of words <laughs> What does Jeremiah 29 11 say? For I know the plans I have for you, says oh. the Lord. Plans to oh, prosper you. Yes. And not to yes. harm you. I mean, the prosperity gospel in and yeah. of itself, that's it. Checks. Just pray for checks in the mail and new cars and a new job. And you'll be blessed if you just have more faith in Christ. I mean, that's that's flat embarrassing. I've been to those rallies. Yeah. Right. And God bless them. And I know that, I, you know, God, don't I just, bless them. Don't, don't I know. Do I, yeah, don't, <laughs> yeah, I, I am sure that that all started with positive intent. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody had a wise idea. They woke up in the middle of the night and had an epiphany after a bad sandwich at night. Or I don't know. It probably worked for one white dude who didn't realize he was being blessed because he was in charge. Right. Or something, something that was like a privileged experience yeah. of some kind. Right. I know. There are certain things that we've done that are embarrassing, but mm -hmm. we, what the beauty of like the church is resilient. The church is the bride of Christ. Can I tell a story? <laughs> okay. That's why we're here. Okay. Is it a funny one? It's a funny one. Okay. This is about the bride of Christ, right? The embarrassing things that we've done as the bride of Christ. There was a time that I was a part of a wedding and I wasn't in the wedding. I was just helping out with the wedding. And there was a bride and she had to, she got her wedding dress on and she had to go to the bathroom. Right. And so she didn't know what to do because she had this like, you know, costume on yeah this... you, you gotta have a friend hold it yeah and so she's in the bathroom she got poop all over her dress oh no oh poor thing 
bride of Christ. <laughs> right? I think there's a metaphor there. There's a met there's a beautiful metaphor there. I think I think that I think that that we have the beautiful opportunity to go to the dry cleaners and get cleaned up. We have a beautiful opportunity to become that bride of Christ that God wants us to be. Hmm. We have that opportunity right now and to deconstruct some of the things that we've, you know, believed in and to look at the harm, the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the actual harm that we've issued people because of certain like really embarrassing beliefs. Like I've had, I've been told that if I, if I don't believe in the seven days of creation, I'm not a Christian. It's like, where do you get that from? Um, or that, you know, if I, if I, uh, put a female in as a pastor, that's the slippery slope of, you know, that's, I'm not a church that's, I've been told I'm not a church because of, because of how embarrassing, but how like harmful is that? Right. So, so I think there's so many things that we've done based on poor interpretation of scripture, abuse of scripture, our own pride and lack of change, flexibility, looking at the culture and saying, okay, how can we apply the gospel to culture? Um, I think that the church is notorious for allowing, we're so afraid of allowing culture to, you know, dictate the gospel. I think we've done that. We've done that. Culture is the one with like power. we, the, the power, like the power structures and stuff that we, I think that that definitely has been adopted or the culture adopted it from the church. Who knows? But I would say that we have so much opportunity right now, wherever the cause, whatever the cause, we have so much opportunity right now to make a 180 degree change and become that bride of Christ and clean the poop off our dress. Because when and you with know that, better, you do better. <laughs> and with that, good night, everybody. <laughs> all right. We do have to go. It's 10 o'clock. We covered all kinds of things tonight. So I hope that uh, you got something all out of that. All kinds of things. All kinds of things, shame and guilt, self-compassion, perfectionism, humiliation and embarrassments. I hope that, uh, and wedding dress. I, I poop on a wedding dress. I hope that, um, that we can put some practices in place, look for the therapies that we need, the flesh and blood groups that we need to be a part of, um, to heal from certain things. And to not just card stack our shame and our guilt and our embarrassment and our humili uh, humiliation uh, in our life. So that's our prayer for you tonight. Thanks, you guys, for joining us and giving lots of input. And with yeah. that, good night. Good night. Everybody. Good night. <laughs>